What happens when robots begin to outthink human beings? As we find out today, chaos reigns as robots begin to think and make decisions for themselves. In this episode, we cover chapters 5 and 6 of Isaac Asimov's I, Robot, Liar, and Little Lost Robot. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I am Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. I, Jason, am a seasoned reader of Asimov's sci-fi novels. Jacob and Stephanie are newcomers, and together we are going to dive in and investigate the themes and meanings of these books and look at their relevance today. And so today we are talking about two chapters of iRobot that I think are the most interesting so far. Some of my favorite work in the entire book. Yeah, I'm really excited about our our episode today. Yep. They can't see you nod, man. I know, that's why I said yep. And although I think that particularly Liar has some very, very troubling characterizations, if you ask me, as far as like how Susan Calvin is depicted and the way that her, I would say that her femininity is misused in this story in order to make the points that are trying to be made. Uh, So I do think that once again, in that aspect, it's rather dated in my opinion, but the questions that are asked in it and the the things that are examined in it, I think, are just so, so fascinating. So without further ado, we're going to get into a recap of it for you. Lead us off, Jason. I'm excited. The department heads of U.S. Robotic and Mechanical Men Corporation Alfred Lanning, Peter Bogert, Milton Ash, and Susan Calvin are having a tense meeting about a newly assembled RB model robot that mysteriously has the ability to read human thoughts. It is decided that the matter will be kept a secret, and Director Lanning instructs the team to tackle the problem from their distinct specializations. Ash will investigate on the mechanical end. Lanning and Bogert, among whom there is a slight air of scholarly rivalry, will analyze from a mathematical angle, and Calvin U.S. Robot's robo-psychologist will seek an answer through direct dialogue with the robot, whose nickname is Herbie. In talking about Herbie's interests, romance novels over textbooks, Dr. Calvin gains the distinct impression that Herbie knows a secret of hers. In a tense back-and-forth dialogue, it is revealed that Calvin has feelings for Milton Ash, but has been too afraid to tell him. Herbie then offers to Susan that Milton feels the same way about her which brings her into a state of elation. She thanks Herbie and leaves. About a week later, Ash and Bogert are conversing about how the problem of Herbie still hasn't been solved. Bogert lays blame on Lanning because of their mathematical disagreements. Ash suggests that Bogert ask Herbie to analyze the positronic equations since he's skilled in math, according to Calvin, who Ash mentions has been acting a little funny lately. Bogert, although dubious, agrees. Herbie completely confirms Bogert's equations and his status as a superior mathematician. Following this, through a mix of Bogert's cautious questions and Herbie's mind reading, Herbie announces that Lanning has chosen to resign and that Bogert will be the new director. Bogert is surprised 
but triumphant. There is then a heated confrontation between Bogart and Lanning. They each claim that Herbie supports their own findings. Bogart suspects that Lanning wants to crack the secret of Herbie's mind reading all by himself and decides on a power play, which is based on the notion of his being the new director. When Bogart explains all of this to Lanning, Lanning vehemently denies his resignation. He is at a loss and highly suspicious. Meanwhile, Calvin and Ash are chatting about a house that Milton is going to build, with Calvin staring adoringly. She is thrown into extreme disorientation, however, when Ash reveals to her he is going to get married soon. Feeling physically ill, she rushes up several flights of stairs and encounters Herbie. He tells her that she is only dreaming and that Ash really does love her, but she comes to her senses, just as Lanning and Bogart enter to confront Herbie. Herbie cannot coherently answer either of the men as to who has the truth. Calvin, however, enraged and embarrassed, now understands what is going on. Drawing the truth out of Herbie, he admits that he has been telling each person just what they in their minds want to hear. Being bound by the first law, he cannot allow a human to be harmed, and his mind-reading answer to this is to be a yes-man, or a yes-robot. Calvin also deduces that Herbie knows where the abnormality in his brain construction lies. Herbie confirms this, but he cannot tell because it would hurt the pride of Lanning and Bogart. Calvin, still seething, forces the issue upon Herbie. Harm if he gives the solution, and harm if he does not. Herbie is driven mad, collapsing to the floor in a catatonic state. Little Lost Robot Susan Calvin and Peter Bogart have been asked to come to Hyperbase, an asteroid on which the government is conducting experiments for a hyperatomic drive that would allow for interstellar travel. It is revealed by Major General Kalner that one of their NS model robots has disappeared among a large group of 62 identical robots and refuses to identify itself. Due to the dangers posed to humans by hyperbase experiments, this robot is part of a select group which has a modified first law, no harming a human being, but an allowance for human beings to be harmed. These were demanded by the government under the threat of anti-robot legislation. The situation is top secret. Despite reassurances from Bogart and Kalner, Susan Calvin is mortified. On the one hand, that such robots were allowed to be created, but also that she has been left in the dark about the matter. She quickly suggests destroying the entire group of robots, but the idea is shot down. She and Bogart later discuss that a robot with a compromised first law means positronic instability, and that if too unstable, then the robot, subconsciously resentful over its domination by humans, may lose complete control with deadly consequences. Bogart remains skeptical. The two interview Gerald Black, the last person to have seen Nestor 10, the missing robot. After much prodding, Black nervously admits that in a fit of anger he told Nestor 10 to lose himself, along with an intense string of profane insults. Being bound by the second law, Nestor 10 has complied. After unsuccessfully interviewing all 63 Nestor robots, Calvin begins to grow worried that Nestor 10 may be developing a sense of pride in its successful concealment and a need to prove its superiority over humans. She and Bogart devise physical tests for the robots in an effort to identify Nestor 10. By putting a human being in harm's way, although removing that harm at just the right moment, they hope to detect Nestor 10's diminished need to protect a human. After several unsuccessful attempts of different varieties, some involving Nestor 10's secret manipulation of other robots, Calvin devises another test based on Nestor 10's lack of specialized training. 
which finally causes him to slip in his concealment, and he is caught. Nestor Ten approaches Calvin and nearly kills her, only remnants of his first law impressioning remaining. Just in time, Gerald Black briefly exposes Nestor Ten to a moderate gamma field. Not harmful to Calvin, but deadly to the robot. It is decided that the other modified Nestors will be destroyed, and Calvin and Bogart return to Earth. Okay, so I have an immediate question about the obscenities along with Go Lose Yourself. So, obviously, Nestor 10 follows the Go Lose Yourself rule, but a fairly common obscenity is go, you know, right? So, can he and did he? You have so much, like, unspoken there that only I am getting what you're saying. Okay. I think we'll just leave it that because I think I get what you're saying, but I really don't want to go. I'm not going to explain. No, I don't know if I don't there was a go further. I don't know it's if there was a rim that. shot that was a, that was supposed to come in there. Maybe yeah, I'll absolutely. It if you can add a rim shot so it's funny and not just like deafening silence. Out of the, these two stories, are take a very wild turn away from uh, the last podcast. You know, with with Mike and Greg, we're having more fun antics wrestling with laws. And ethics and how they wrestle with one another. If you can call near-death experiences fun, I'm oh, they're sure. hilarious. Where th- these two stories seem to take a different turn about implications, heavy, heavy implications of those ethics of the three laws and what breaking them or modifying them or what have you could mean for humans as well as for robots. Yeah, there's so much more in these stories about robots as thinking beings. They seem more like people and less like machines. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, in Liar, uh, we see that he has, uh, it's Herbie, right? That's right, Herbie. Herbie has almost no interest in textbooks because he's more interested in the complex, and I don't think he says it, but he it feels implied in the dialogue, the fascinating nature of of people and fiction and and the the art of humanity right and not just the technology of humanity he's got the classic i want to be where the people are i want to be a human being disney sort of thing going on right people are on the one hand i'm not sure exactly it's never stated why he can read minds um the story immediately preceding this had to do with positronic fields and how robots send thought waves essentially to their robot subsidiaries and control them so I have to wonder whether this is a positronic field sort of thing mm. where he's receiving brain waves um, and, and interpreting them. But yes, I mean, it's like textbooks lend themselves to constructs and mathematical formulas and things that are put down on paper. I mean, quite literally, obviously, if it's a textbook. But Herbie is of a much different nature because of whatever abnormality has happened to him in his construction. And so he is much more interested in the amorphous, the things that you can't break down to to textbook stuff that are human emotions. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't think we've come across a robot that has its own interests yet. Right. I think one could argue from the previous podcast about Cutie, the religious fervor reason robot having some sort of interest, but I think that was more of just following a logic train. But I mean, Herbie, Robbie likes stories. 
Yeah. Yeah, and we're bringing back Robbie again. I guess that's a good point. We're bringing back Robbie into the Herbie story of what having a specific autonomous interest, like but, a personality. But I think another difference is, though, is that it's not just about interest. It's also about stakes. I don't think we've ever had in any of the stories so far a situation in which the stakes were so high for these robots. And I think, I mean, maybe that's just appearances and how it's been written. But the way that these robots are presented is that Herbie has a lot at stake in needing to in needing to please all of the people that are around him for reasons that in other stories have not been made as explicit at any rate. Mm. Nestor 10 has this very high stakes need in his positronic brain to prove his superiority and to stay concealed. Yeah, I, I want to come back to those too. The, the higher stakes of personal, it's like the robots themselves are starting to get personal goals and purposes instead of just having reason and rhyme. So would you argue that these robots are getting closer to being people? Um, I, I would say I would say yes, because they're they're starting to develop their own autonomous purpose, autonomous interests, personalities. And I would say that they're approaching closer uh, to that, but in different ways, because yeah. um, Herbie is getting closer to something that could be considered something like something like empathy. Um, yeah, yeah, he's very childlike. But he's, I mean, the fact that he can actually read people's emotions and, and depending on what the nature of those emotions is, he can actually feel that pain to a certain degree and it actually hurts him to feel that pain that almost has a certain appearance to empathy to it. Yeah. And then Nestor 10 is approaching a little bit closer to humanity because like we've already said, he has this goal in mind. And that is starting to rise up above the three laws. His goals are not just, okay, don't harm humans, obey humans' orders, and protect yourself. He actually has the task now that he has, has developed to evade detection. Well, and he's proud. He's got this pride of- Yeah, he has ambition. Evading. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, I think is a good segue into the first theme I want to bring up today, which is power social power and the ability to influence things uh who has it and why yeah right so i i think when we look at liar um it's one sort of power uh maybe even a supernatural one to read people's minds but i think it's another kind of social power that everyone has to answer to you because you're the only one who can read minds right there's something that could potentially be sinister about that. But the way you see Herbie doing it is a very uh, immature style of protecting one another and serving, actually. He is still trying to serve uh, the humans around him. And you can see that well because he tells um, he tells one person, oh, your dream is going to come true. He tells another person, oh, you're the superior mathematician. He is still serving. He didn't need to tell them those things. He only needed to answer yes, no answers, but he wanted to serve. So he, this mind reading thing could have gone sinister, but he's trying to be, to be benevolent in an immature way. Yeah, and it just ends up being sinister in a different way. And it does, and it still causes harm. And it's interesting because he has the power uh, uh, in the whole room. It's, it's Herbie. 
Yeah, he has this sort of emotional power over other people. And I would say it is very immature because he doesn't understand the difference between um, helping people and not harming people. So, you know, the first law is don't let people be harmed. Well, her continuing or Calvin continuing to not know that this guy liked her, if theoretically he did like her, that's not necessarily going to harm her. Right. Like he has this very childish definition of harm where it's, I'm not getting what I want. Yeah, still very rigid. I mean, like the way that I've been thinking about this is that a human being spends years growing up and maturing and socializing um, yeah. in order to understand how to how to interact with people in a way that is not harmful um, that and that prevents harm from coming to people. It takes a long time for a person to reach full maturity in their brain and in their psyche to be able to properly interact um, with the people that are around them. Herbie is like this very tragic case in my mind because the positronic brain comes fully formed. The robot is, comes with a fully formed positronic brain and it's ready to operate in its functions. It's ready to go. But then what happens if you suddenly give it the practical input that is necessary to detect human emotions in ways that it takes a human being years to develop? But they've got it all at once, and they have none of the experience that's necessary to actually navigate that. And so I find Herbie to be a very tragic character in yeah. that sense, because he has all of this power and yet no idea what to do with it. It's very interesting. So you're bringing up like a, a growth mindset and, a, and a, the ability to grow bigger than yourself. And I don't even really know if Herbie has the ability to grow it's just that by accident, he has this capacity that is very similar to what a human being can have. I mean, we read one another's emotions, albeit imperfectly, um, yeah. all the time. We read people's body language. We read people's intonation. We, we get this sense that goes just beyond, that goes beyond appearances, and we, in a sense, are reading people. And yeah. Herbie gets something like that, but he is just thrust right into it. And obviously, it is ultimately self-destructive for him. I could see, I could see where you're coming from with that. And in, I didn't think about it that way, but now I'm kind of sad because <laughs> it could have been such a useful thing. Poor but guy he didn't have the. It seems like um, it's another one of those. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. I wish I could just read people's minds, know what they want, and that wouldn't help you at all. Right. No, but, it wouldn't. Um, but the other thing is that that makes Calvin's characterization and her actions at the end of the story all the more surprising to me and really angering to me. I know that this is a separate story from other stories. Um, Asimov may have gone through different phases with her character or different things that he tried out with her character, but just the fact that she's a robo-psychologist and is supposed to be able to understand what it is that he's going through, understand that he's an imperfect machine, but she's just so enraged at what has happened to her. It's like she can't control herself. And she renders this robot catatonic by forcing it to face the paradox that it has. 
and and says to it at the end, you know, that that last word of the chapter, liar. And then she like spits on it and steps on it or something. It's like she's really mad. She doesn't really spit on it and step yeah. on it. Well, you know, she is a career woman in the what, the forties, the fifties. So she probably has had to choose this is my career and is probably desperately trying to shove down all of those thoughts because it just is impossible for her to have both. I mean, it's difficult now to have both, um, especially for women. So, you know, I can, I can understand the bitterness. I can understand the anger of how dare you bring this up? How dare you give me hope? And even though you're imperfect because he is so childlike, it feels malicious that he would do that. Uh, I can't say that. I can't go that far because look, I can say from my own personal experience, mm-hmm. a lot of times I have a lot of difficulty saying no to people. That was a lot worse several years ago. I, as I have gained emotional maturity, I have learned what it takes to say no to people and understand what's healthy for me. Um, but I understand what it's like to want to be a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. And to be to be doing that badly in such a way that really nobody's pleased. And that's kind of the way that I relate Herbie over to real world real world situations. He wants to please people and he has this particular abnormality that that warps that desire to please over into a certain sort of behavior. He can't help himself. He can't help, but but it still causes harm. It does, but still, the fact that she calls him a liar and just looks at him with this animosity mm-hmm. that really I feel is undeserved. I just, I've, I can't. I mean, sit well I can with that. understand her anger and her bitterness, and yes, maybe that is causing her to an extreme reaction that isn't necessarily isn't necessarily right, especially given the fact that you're right. She is a robosochologist. And she is supposed to understand, like, he doesn't know what is going on. He is very much just a child who can read your mind and accidentally, you know, poked this huge sore. But I can't understand how big the sore is yeah, and, you know, why her reaction would be so extreme. I, I can understand the-, the reaction. But at the end of the day, you know, even, even Lanning and Bogart are, like, looking at this catatonic robot. And they're like, ah. Eh. Oh, well, a robot of this kind is useless anyway, as we can obviously see from everything that just happened. And they just walk away and I'm like, okay, I guess he just gets scrapped now. And now actually, I think what will happen from there, he probably gets turned into a Volkswagen Beetle that then um, helps the main characters of a movie to fall in love. Because that's really what he wanted was to help Susan Calvin <laughs> fall in love. Right? I see. I, I see was, that I connection, and I love it. That. <laughs> uh, without any reason at all, I'm just going to take that as canon. So, so we actually went into another theme I wanted to bring up, which was um, control uh, and fear. A little bit is coming into this big time. Uh, the moment that we see our own thoughts aren't entirely private, right? everyone's on edge of their own thoughts. The moment that I may not have as much control, even in this minor way, like, because private versus in private, one, some, some could argue is not a big deal. Some people could argue is a huge deal. Whatever your stance is on that, just the sense of control being touched on 
everyone drops into a, a almost a fugue state, ready to ready to bite fight each other or or throw arms to the wind and and go fall in love right here right now. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, it makes you it raises that question: Is it if everyone's thoughts were truly out in the open suddenly, what would really happen? You know, when we when we think about the secret thoughts that everyone has, um, what would that do to people's relationships? And um, I guess that for me raises the question. It brings me back to emotional maturity, but this time on the human side. You know, huh. I would think that yes, we all have our own thoughts and we all have our our things that are private to our own minds but what does it mean that in so many cases if if all of our thoughts were to suddenly come out then it would do like considerable damage to all of our relationships what does that mean for what we carry on the outside of us and what we carry as far as the appearances that we keep up on the outside mm-hmm. of us versus what we versus what we keep on the inside and don't express in healthy ways. Like, I'm not saying that means that you just lay it all out there and insult all of your friends about yeah. all of their shortcomings, but it means that what does it mean to really deal in a, an emotionally healthy way in With the relationships behind the curtain? Yeah, that you have. And so, if anything, this is not just about a malfunctioning robot i think it's about malfunctioning people and susan calvin has that line near the end of liar where she says there's nothing wrong with herbie only us only us it reminds me of this idea okay i'm sure you've heard the phrase like to know them biblically which is (laughs) kind of a sarcastic way of okay yeah talking about sex okay but the the knowing is so intimate when that word is used it's like that level of being connected to another person so i would say that having your mind read would be a lot like just being naked in public constantly and all of your little flaws and like that one little part that's like just a little bit weird that your clothes very flatteringly hide that is exposed all the time and it it is very vulnerable but at the same time Hopefully you do have people that you can share that. Okay, that's where the analogy breaks down. Hopefully you have people that you can share your mind with that deeply. Yeah, I think I kind of want to get back to the curtain statement you made, Jason. Um, Because there are things running in our background. There are thoughts or our feelings left undealt with. I would say even control us from that curtain. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like to a major extent. But if someone were to know my deepest and most thoughts and find me dishonest with how I present myself to the to the public, that would cause me harm. But there's another level of maturity where it's like, well, if I just spend time wrestling with my emotions, sharing my mind with someone who knows me and is safe and growing up, eventually I won't have so many inward thoughts that are so toxic, right? Or what? I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a theologian, I think that there is a God factor there in growth and change and becoming better. Um, righteous is the word that you would use. But at the same time, yeah, like there is, as iron sharpens iron, like people make each other better, at least in theory, uh, as we call out flaws and as we call out, hey, you know, that's a that's a broken thing about you. Let's maybe talk about that. I'd also like to switch back over to talking about power dynamics and who has power and who doesn't when it comes to the other story 
that we're covering in this episode, which is Little Lost Robot. With Nestor 10. Oh, man. I love this story so much. I sense, on the one hand, this hierarchy of who's in control and who Mm -hmm. has power, or as Gerald Black and another technician at Hyperbase say at one point in the story, who has pull. And um, I, I sense like this sense of stratification of power dynamics. Yeah. So you have the government who is demanding the use of the robots uh, who have a modified first law. And if they say, if U.S. robots says no, then the U.S. government will respond with anti-robot legislation. And so there's this weird hypocritical sort of activity going on here, like give us what we want or we'll make it so no one can have that anything. anything, including the thing that we actually want. And so they're forcing the hand of U.S. robots. And then you have Bogert, who is probably by now the director. Um, he wanted the directorship in Liar, and now there's no talk of Lanning. So I'm thinking now that he's director. And he is he feels resentment toward that. He feels resentful toward the government for forcing their hand but he's also happy about the money that they're giving to U.S. robots. Which is power. Money is typically in a way to influence things. Yeah, so there's a level of power that he has, and and that power also seems to be kind of exercised against Susan Calvin because she didn't know anything about this. She was kept out of the loop on it. She definitely comes in as the bottom or the second from the bottom when it comes to power and influence. Yeah, because... um, I would say I'm not sure how deliberate this was, but I feel like it was very clear to me that there were issues in this story about her being a woman in this field. Yeah, it's one of those things where, and I've experienced this and it sucks, where you're like, I'm not sure if this is a power play because it's a power play and that's how human politics work no matter where you are, or if this is a I'm a girl thing. And that just... That is such a frustrating place to just sit. There are a couple particular moments that I think highlight that, mm-hmm. you know, like at one point where Bogart and Major General Kalner are talking to each other about Calvin and um, Bogart is talking about, well, yeah, I think she sympathizes with robots because because uh, she hates humans so much. Yeah, she's just paranoid. You can ignore her. Yeah, and and really, their entire attitude toward her for a lot of the story is one of just basically writing off her 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 views on this. But also the fact that Major General Kalner then goes right to questioning her qualifications. Are you sure she's qualified for this? And 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 Bogart says, "Well, yes, yes, she is qualified." But I'm wondering to myself, is that the sort of thing that would happen in a situation where the dissenting voice were a man? If would- it were Mike and Greg. Right. Would you ask that question? Right. And and then even subtle things where Gerald Black is talking to another technician by the name of Walensky. And and Walensky asks, what's going on here? And Gerald Black says, ah, nothing major. They sent up two men from U.S. robots to, to investigate something. And I thought, that was weird. That was a weird little choice that was just made there. They sent up two guys, you know. It's like, is there, I'm not saying it was necessarily deliberate on Black's part, but it's this tiny little moment where it's like, wait, wait, one of them is a woman. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It just felt to me as though her role at U.S. Robots 
and her and her being a woman that made her less than in the eyes of a lot of people of a lot of the other characters in that chapter. Yeah, she definitely is struggling with people not taking her seriously and the guys around her not taking her seriously and this question of like how can I is it okay if I segue a little bit into worldview? Yeah. Because there's always this question, and I've wrestled with this, of how can I present myself in the way that is going to be most effective? And I think the previous generation, uh, in Susan Calvin's generation, the most effective way to present yourself is like a man. Because they're going to take you seriously if you act like a man. And my generation struggles a lot more with how can I claim femininity in a way that is good, in a way that is distinctly feminine, but is also not less than, like, how can I present myself in a way that won't be looked down on? But that's also not completely my responsibility. So I, how can I be challengingly feminine, but also taken seriously? And it's and just something be. you think about all the time. Yeah. So that's a lot of tensions. Whose accountability is it to grow up in this situation, right? Given any given situation. Yep. Whose whose responsibility is it to actually progress? Whose responsibility is it to make me comfortable in the situation? What um, what kind of comfortable am I shooting for? Am I shooting for comfortable in mm-hmm. like stature? Like uh, Susan Calvin's definitely shooting yeah. for like, hey, I am I am the robo psychologist. Yes. Respect she me. She is just fighting for a place at the table, and that requires her probably to be a little cold, and. You know, I can understand her bitterness because she's constantly fighting for being there at the table with them and being taken seriously. So I've I've got a question following that yeah. uh, that table analogy. So would you say then that our generation of women are less fighting for a place at the table and more fighting to eat at the table? Or like, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I see what the analogy you're going for. I think there are definitely some women who are still fighting for a place at the table. And it depends on what table it is, the engineer's table or the mathematician's table. Like there are still places where there aren't enough women and it's a percentage game. So now we usually have at least one woman at the table. But, you know, even one or three women at a 10 person table is still not equal representation and you have to calculate race in there as well. Like, as a white woman, I have more opportunities. So it, it's still that problem. But maybe, perhaps, generally, it's more about getting enough women, equal amounts of women at the table. And it's about... Allowing um, them to be women? Allowing them to be women. Instead yeah. of asking women to be manly. Yeah. Interesting. I think something that is also going on in this story is that a lot of these power dynamics, I mean, obviously they are focused in on the topic of Nestor 10 Mm -hmm. because Nestor 10 has a modified first law and that has caused an instability in him. And again, we're talking about sometimes robots are faced in these stories with internal modifications or abnormalities and sometimes they're faced with external circumstances that impact them and in this time in this case it's both modified first law and the very strong order to go lose himself um, put him in this situation where where his mind gets warped essentially and now all of the resentment 
that comes from the different power dynamics between humans and robots starts to kind of bubble out and come to the surface. That's also a new thing um, as far as the book is concerned. We have not really dealt with the idea that a robot can have resentment over being dominated by humans. Yeah, that was interesting because power seems to be a big one, right? So when a robot who has ability but no power, what do they do? Well, they feel resentment, it seems. Which I'm not exactly sure why that has to be the case. I think this gets to the idea that these robots in these stories, they are more than just computers. They have a brain and they have thoughts. And so they are independent, autonomous entities. And so it's not just a computer program. It's a, it's a being of some kind. And so that, that raises these ethics questions and, and, and puts them in a whole different light because we're not just dealing with a machine that kind of in my in my view connects with the objectification that is placed upon Calvin mm-hmm. or the objectification that is placed upon any character at any level throughout the story in as much as it happens because everyone is still objectifying Nestor 10 but he is he's a thinking entity and he's mm. trying to prove that he has power. So are you saying that there is a little bit of a character foil between Calvin and this Nestor 10 robot? Absolutely. Hmm. She well, is struggling to be she's struggling to be heard. She is struggling to prove herself. That's interesting. Could you also say that there's a character foil between like Herbie and Calvin in our previous story of Liar? I don't know if I would go that far. Because she is a robo-psychologist, and she's supposed to be, you know, reading these, the minds of these robots. I guess maybe I wasn't understanding properly when you were saying foil. I almost feel like maybe Calvin and Herbie are foils, perhaps. Yeah. Because Calvin is withdrawn and wants to conceal and hide all of the emotion. I see what you're saying is reaching out continually and wants to please emotionally. Yeah. There's this push and pull. Whereas Calvin and Nestor are actually parallel and not foils. Yeah. They're mirroring one another. Yeah. And so I feel like Nestor 10 is an opportunity to raise these questions in a way that helps to analyze them on human levels because Nestor 10 has to prove himself to be superior, even though by all appearances, culturally and socially, he is an inferior being or a less than being. But to him, he is superior. Calvin knows her expertise. She knows her field. And yet by all appearances, socially, she is considered, even if it's thinly veiled, she is considered less than because of her being a woman in her field. Mm -hmm. And she has the desire to prove herself and to prove that she is qualified and is just as good at what she does as any man would be. And, and it's you know, really interesting then that she is the one who eventually outsmarts Nestor 10 and finds him. Yes. And then and then after doing that, she she has the authority to say, destroy all these robots. We're just gonna have problems. The ending is so satisfying. It's yeah. really satisfying. It's also if as as far as there are parallels, I think another parallel you can see between Nestor and uh, Calvin is that like Nestor has this superiority over 
and has this like human resentment where Calvin has this, like she is probably one of the more superior thinkers in the room. And it, like she, there's a whole lot of uh, dialogue and verbiage and, and descriptions where she is bitter at the guys in the room. And she also has resentment. Well, she's been working there for a long time and they're still not listening to her. Well, it's, it's, I find it interesting that the resolution of the robot's resentment was he died. Yeah, what does that say I'm not about quite Calvin, comfortable where you're going with this. Well, all I'm saying is, what do you what do you think of Calvin's resentment then? I I think it is justified resentment, but that doesn't mean that holding on to it is good for her. So that's where they kind of split into more of a foil, because where Nestor Ten, um, it is proved that he is not equal and he is outsmarted and destroyed calvin proves that she is in fact superior and is in fact an equal and is therefore able to continue upward rather than going down like nestor 10 goes down so they like their paths i would say their paths split transition into worldview and actually the first thing I want to bring up is this sort of we've been sort of having a discussion about Calvin and femininity and how her being a woman kind of fits into all of this and we kind of had an interesting conversation off the podcast so I'd like to have it again when we're actually recording about what do you think about her desire in liar her ultimate desire being to have a relationship. What do you guys think about that? I feel unqualified as a man. Okay, respect, but also answer the question. I feel like humans are designed to be relational creatures and is therefore kind of like a justifying thing that an ultimate desire would be relationship, to be known and to be close to another person. I had a little bit of a hiccup going does it have to be a romantic one for calvin like she's the only woman could we have swung swung it where ash was the only one that had the romantic but I, I won't get too much into that yeah it's a product of its time for better or for worse you know i mean i feel like he's dealing with this as just as much of a trope as he's dealing with it as as a device for accomplishing goals you know like if the, if this was going to happen at the time that it was written, I don't think it would have gone any other way. Yeah, I I would agree with both of you. It, it's a product of its time. I think you know human beings desire relationship, and that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable because she is the only girl in the room, and we want to steer away from women just being vehicles for you know future male population. Uh, and objectifying (laughs) them in that way yeah but you know it's reasonable that she does want relationship it's a little questionable you know um we were talking about parallels and character parallels and foils earlier um if i know that herbie and calvin as you guys brought up were mostly a foil but could they perhaps be a parallel in the relationship sense? Like they both just want relationship? Yeah. 
I'm going to say they stay a foil because Herbie wants relationship in which he is subjugated because Oof. he needs <laughs> this is getting weird. He he needs the control cuz he's a robot. He needs someone to cuz like you were talking about Jason, you were um and I can feel the bright like weird flashers so, but we're just going to blow past him. Um you were talking about Herbie being immature like really immature and he just has all this information he doesn't know what to do with it so his need for relationship is like tell me what to do with all of this information whereas calvin i would suspect that a need for relationship is just because she's a human being and companionship is important right so even though it's stereotypical it's at least natural yeah whereas herbie is in a is in a position where as far as robots are concerned this is highly irregular yeah Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to give it like a five, like a five on the okayness scale, because it's got some, it's got some definite stereotyping that probably shouldn't be there, but to, to some degree it is true and, and fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, humans need relationship and I think, I think most worldviews will agree with that. Like we need friends, we need people. I, th- I think an unspoken worldview in America is you need to have a romantic relationship. Yeah, and I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that worldview personally too, but um, but it's definitely there. It's definitely poignant. Yeah, that actually is a great transition into my second kind of worldview question, which is what makes us happy? And in Liar, we get this discussion of what we want versus what is actually good for us. And Herbie can only think in the what we want is what we need what we should get, um, that our desires are pure. And they're not all the time. No. <laughs> so he is ultimately caught in this paradox of what we want versus what we need because he doesn't understand that human beings sometimes want things that aren't very good for them. I want more cake this morning, but... There will be no cake for you. Yeah. It's sad, but it's also going to make me grow up. It will stop you from growing out. <laughs> Um, so what makes us happy? I I think that's a great question to ask. Um, I feel like this is an uns... It's a question that not a lot of people actually consciously talk about. And I think until you consciously talk about it, you have only impressions from your environment that tell you I'm this will make you, you happy. I'm going to need you to clarify. So, um, okay. So let's, let's jump back to high school, right? Um, if you're in high school, you're typically looking for things in your environment that tell you how to live, but that aren't your parents anymore or that aren't your guardians anymore. You're looking for, I'm going to be me. What does, what does me look like? So you start looking into your environment to see what that is. Well, what's in your environment? Advertisements. Advertisements always say, get more money, drink this liquid energy drink, coffee. Until we wrestle with what, like consciously saying, what is it? that makes me happy all of these impressions we get from the environment will rule us so in herbie when he does the mind reading stuff we see their impressions from their environment oh i want success oh i want ambition oh i want a relationship could be environmental things until you wrestle with it in front of you which calvin kind of does and then she moves on and i and i can see that applying to us today in the same way like i don't know last time i sat down and went I'm going to look for things that feed my identity and feed my soul. 
what are those things and what and what ways I'm am I trying to feed that in an unhealthy way like cake and herbie <laughs> kind of represents that because he's feeding people's desires in an incredibly unhealthy way yeah he's just telling them that the reality that they want to have actually is the reality that they have and so i almost feel like he represents the psychological pull toward really i mean just kind of living in fantasy about things and kind of envisioning them to be to be the reality that you want them to be as opposed to really going out and living life um now granted the characters walk around actually truly believing that the reality that Herbie is presenting to them is is genuine and so you know there's a little bit of a difference here but i do think that herbie represents unhealthy modes of how we think about what it is that we want versus how we actually go about actualizing fulfillment in our in our lives. Mm, hard reality versus fantasy. Yeah. And then in Little Lost Robot, we get this question of, again, what makes us happy? And uh, the question of, is not harming someone the same as helping them? And it's pretty obvious throughout the story that you personally not harming someone is not the same as actually helping them to succeed. So Naster 10, he doesn't harm anyone, but he definitely is going to allow them to be harmed. Well, it seems like in Little Lost Robot that um, Nestor is seeking happiness by way of having power over others. Yeah, that's a good way to put that. And I don't think that's too uh, far from a lot of people that we come across today. And in and, and some ways, sadly, as I've grown up and have been growing up, I've found myself doing similar things. If I'm a better track runner, if I'm a better video gamer than that person, than that person, then maybe my self-esteem or maybe my happiness is boosted. Even though it's not, it, it runs in the background. Yeah, we talked about Calvin and Nestor 10 potentially being parallel to one another. And maybe this kind of comes back to some of the questions you were raising, Stephanie. It's like, well, if Nestor 10 comes out that way, dead and looked upon negatively if he and calvin are parallels then what does that say about what does that say about calvin and i guess now that i've had the chance to think about it in light of what you were saying jacob it seems like nestor 10 perhaps represents the dark side of when we have a desire for we have a desire to be actualized in the minds of the people around us you know to yeah. have value but when that desire turns into attempting to to dominate others yourself, then that's where that desire for self actualization and like uh, within within your circle or or within your um, social environment, that's when that goes south, because um, it's something that Calvin is struggling with throughout the whole thing. You know, how is she going to prove herself? Uh, to all of these people around her who think less of her. Yeah. And obviously she does not get to the point of her mind being warped and her going insane and trying to uh, actually start harm harming people or deceiving them. But I think that Nestor 10 represents the potential that is um, that is there in a situation where someone who is undervalued um 
takes matters into their own hands in a very negative way. Yeah, he represents this idea of when someone has power over you, our instinct is sometimes to say, I'm taking power over you, and that will make this right. When in reality, it doesn't actually make it right. Ultimately, you know, what has to happen is that that power has to be surrendered to a point of equalization. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying the point of power is to share that power with the least of these. I would say that the point of power is to bless others. Oof. Yeah. It's it's to raise, if you are strong, the point of you being strong is to lift other people up so that they can get what they need. Which brings us back, I think, to the question of the implications of having these sentient robots walking around. Because if they're thinking entities who apparently can have feelings and emotion, well, I don't know if I want to call them emotional responses, but if they can experience resentment and desires to prove themselves superior, you know, if that's what we're facing in this narrative universe, then it really raises troubling implications for the use of robots as basically slaves. Yeah, because because they are being completely dominated. I think what we're seeing then is that this conversation is not just applying to individual relationships. It is something that can be extrapolated out into societal levels, cultural levels, in ways that are obviously quite pertinent to today. Um, And without getting into that today, we just want to acknowledge that these are heavy and very relevant topics that we're talking about when it comes to power and who has power and what we're supposed to do with that power. Well, Jacob and Stephanie, this is probably the most enjoyment that I've had so far in all of the episodes that we've done. I think I've enjoyed this one the most. This has been an awesome conversation. Oh, well, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. It's been tantalizing. Yeah, and we are going to continue to offer you tantalizing conversation as we (laughs) cover Asimov's novels. And tantalizing uh, we, novels. <laughs> yeah, that could go wrong, couldn't it? <laughs> it could go but wrong. Uh, we want to thank you for having joined us today. We hope that you would subscribe to Galaxy, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts uh, so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you want, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love the support that you have, or if you don't like us, well, you're free to do that too. Leave us a bad review if you want. But you can go to our... Why would I say that to the listeners? Please don't. Leave us a bad review. we need honest, open communication. Yeah, we don't mm. want to just present stuff no. on the surface that isn't no. true to reality. No, we want <laughs> honest on the good side. And then just just keep your mouth shut and move along. Kind of yeah. like... So go be Herbie on our comments accounts. Please tell us what we want to hear. Honestly good. <laughs> Also, head over to our website, galaxypodcast.com. You can catch all of our episodes there, and you can contact us at our email address, which is contact at galaxypodcast.com. Also, check us out at our Facebook page, Galaxy Podcast, and get in on the conversation with us. Contact us. Let us know what you think, and let us know about your love for these books and uh, how you feel about what we've been discussing. So until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. This has been Galaxy. Bye, everybody.
Thank you.